The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, uh, would you open to Mark chapter 8? Last Sunday, uh, we kicked off what's going to be a three-part series called A Jesus-Centered Vision. And it's an important moment for us, for our church, but it's also an important moment in the world. I think all of us can sense that we're on the edge of something. Do you guys feel that? I think there's a sense of maybe trepidation, maybe a little bit of fear that the thing we're on the edge of is something that maybe resembles a revolt of some kind. Um, But what I think we're really in need of is a revival. It is a move of God to capture the hearts of his people and to set society on a course towards human flourishing that starts on the inside and moves to the outside. Can somebody agree with that? And so here we are as a church going into uncharted territories. We, we didn't set out to be a multi-site church. We always ex- plan to have expansion and to church plant and to multiply, uh, but we never thought we'd have two church buildings, two locations at one time. And so that's new for us, and we're seeking the Lord on how to best do that in a way that serves our people and also the community that we're seeking to reach and that God's leading us to. So that's interesting. We're now, uh, we've doubled, doubled our pastoral staff and uh, merging movements and seeking the Lord's face about what that looks like. And it might seem like a time for us to talk about what is the vision of Christ church, but ultimately that doesn't matter because the vision of the church ought to be Jesus no matter the church, right? And so what we need in this moment as a church community is the same thing that our larger community, in fact, the whole world needs, and that is a Jesus-centered vision. It was, it was the, um, the prolific A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you realize that? Even if someone's an atheist and they think about God as non-existing, that thought is going to shape the course of their life. That thought is going to build the ideology by which they think society should flourish. And so I think he's insightful and it's true that when we think about God, those thoughts are the most important things about us. And so I sense the Holy Spirit leading us as a community into uh, the chapters surrounding the declaration, the heaven revealed declaration of Peter, the disciple, that Jesus is the Christ in Mark's gospel in chapter eight and verse 29. So last week I kind of set up for you how Mark seeks to introduce some concepts about needing a miracle to have your, deaf, your spiritual deafness healed so that you can hear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by a word of Christ and that then God does a miracle of opening our eyes and giving us a vision. And Mark does that in a really unique way Uh, in the stories that lead up to chapter eight and verse 29. And we fell just short of the second of those two stories that are connected by Jesus doing a miracle that involved his saliva. And that got our attention. So if you weren't here last week, you can hear the whole version of that. But I'd like for us to turn um, to Mark chapter eight and verse 22 uh, briefly, but I'd like us actually to spend uh, the majority of our time in chapter nine with the, uh, the transfiguration And then this encounter that Jesus has with a man struggling in his faith, a man who's coming against uh, his hopes and is having a crisis of unbelief in in chapter nine as well. 
But before we do that, I just wanna pray and ask the Lord to speak to us and to reveal himself in his word. And so God, I just pray, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, we have every expectation that you are gonna speak. Lord, whenever we open your word in private or public and we allow what you have said to come into our hearts and into our minds, Lord, you're speaking. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do and that is to shine a light not only on this divine revelation from Mark's gospel but also into our own hearts and minds. And I pray there would be a, a divine connection. Lord, I pray there would be some aha moments. Lord, I pray that, that, that we would see Jesus and that we would see him clearly. And so we ask for your help. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Mark 8, 22, it says, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, gross, and laid his hands on him, and if you'll notice at this point, this is an exact, this is like a doublet. This is like the, all the same details of chapter seven, verses 31 to 37, with the man who was deaf and mute. Jesus did the exact same thing. Some people brought the man, the man didn't come alone. They begged Jesus to heal the man. Jesus takes the man to a place privately. Jesus invokes his saliva, and then he does a miracle. And so Mark is getting our attention with these details to say these two things are the same, and they're leading towards something. And so that's what's happening here. And after Jesus lays his hands on him, he asks him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. Somebody say restored. Restored. It's a very important word right here. We're going to see it again. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village, which is a recurring theme. Jesus says, don't say anything to anybody at all. It's not time yet. Of course, that doesn't work on anybody ever. And that's how the story ends with people being afraid and not saying anything. But the goal is if you have seen something, you say something. If you experience something, you share something. And that is what was happening uh, when Mark wrote this gospel is the good news about Jesus was exploding all over the known world. Uh, and the explanation that people got about who he was was mind-blowing to them. And that's what the story is about. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. What kind of Messiah? A suffering Messiah. And this doesn't make sense. These two things do not go together, but they are what they are. And when you see Jesus clearly, it makes everything else make sense. Uh, how many of you guys wear uh, glasses, corrective lenses, or contact lenses? If you're wearing glasses, I can see you. I can see you. <laughs> Tiffany wears uh, contacts. She wears glasses at home also, but she wears contacts. And I don't know if it's from having small children or whatever, but sometimes we're like, trying to get ready to go and she goes, oh, let me put my eyes in. I don't know if you guys ever, anybody else ever says that, but um, she can see, but she can't see clearly. And we didn't know, actually know this uh, until we were dating. I'll never forget, uh, her and I were out with a mutual friend. She was driving, mutual friend was in the front seat and I was in the back, like a good boy. And she's driving and our mutual friend, Elizabeth, had just gotten a new pair of glasses, frames. And of course, uh, Tiffany wanted to see how cute she would look in those frames. And so she put those on at a stoplight and put the frames on. And then she said the most remarkable thing. She said, wow. I can see leaves on trees. I was like, pull over, pull over now. How, how did we get this far into your life without you realizing you needed corrective lenses? Maybe some of you have had that experience where you're, you're living life 
seeing the world as it appears to you. You don't know any different. There's nothing to compare it to. And unless your eyesight's so bad that it hinders you from doing some kind of daily function, whether it's reading or, uh, or driving, then you wouldn't actually know you can't see clearly until the lenses go on and you see the world with vivid uh, detail that you've never seen before. Am I right? And so Mark is actually leading the reader, his readers to this revelation that, okay, a thing happens that you know some stuff and so you see some stuff, but you don't know what you don't know and you can't see what you can't see. And so he brings us to the story of Jesus doing this kind of like staged miracle. And I'm like a little bit of a skeptical person anyway. And so this story always bothered me. It always bothered me. Like they just said at the end of chapter seven, like he does all things well. And then he gets to this miracle and Jesus is like, how about now? How about now? How about now? Do you see that? I've always wondered like, okay, what is it? Did you? And I, and I don't imagine that Jesus was like having a bad day. He was a little off. And so he healed him and he's like, is it good? No, no, I'm gonna try it again. Like left eye, right eye. Is this one better? Is that one better? Like, is this Jesus the optometrist? Like what's going on here? And so having a Jesus-centered vision that comes from knowing him and experiencing him actually gives you clarity even to see Jesus. You know, one of the things that stood out to me Tiffany and I have had this conversation about this passage lots of times because what does it mean, I see people, but they look like trees walking? We're like, what is the significance there? Is this, is this just what he saw and so Mark just re- records this or is there some meaning there? Is there some like spiritual application? Is there some other place in scripture where this is going on? We got kind of fixated on what this guy saw, but it hit me in my study this particular time around in this passage um, of the compassion of Jesus that we saw last week that Jesus is doing the same thing. He's bringing this guy into a private place of healing. And I just imagine myself being blind. And what, was it, what would it be like to be healed? What would, what would that experience look like? And I think maybe it would feel like, this has happened too, we'll be tucking our kids in at, at bed, uh, to bed at night, and Tiffany usually tucks in the boy, and I'm tucking in the girls, and it's usually dark by then. Sometimes it takes them a little while to fall asleep. So I'm sitting in there with the girls and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And then one of them will do this thing where they just flip on the light, bam. And it's, you know, it's jarring. Turn that off. You guys ever had this experience? Have you ever had your child come into your room at 4 a.m. and just turn the light on on you? And I can only imagine that going from being blind to having miraculous sight given would be somewhat jarring. And I started to see, well, maybe Jesus is actually compassionately bringing this man through an experience of staged healing, of going, okay, how about, what are, you, what are you seeing? Okay, things are slowly coming in to focus. I see, but I don't see. The light is coming in, but the clarity is not present. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. But I also think that Mark was using this experience to make kind of a literary point. And that is, you may see Jesus but until you know Jesus, you don't see Jesus through Jesus' lenses. You understand? It'd be easy for somebody who doesn't know Jesus to go, he's not that good at healing blind people from this passage. But when you know him, what you see is a a display of his compassion. Do you see the difference? And what follows next is actually kind of flowing right out of this. Because Mark's putting Jesus forward as the victorious suffering servant. And usually victory and suffering do not go hand in hand. 
And so Jesus is a bit of an enigma to the Jewish mind and I think to the human mind. And so what happens in the following two sections, which we, we went over last week, but in verse 27 to 30, Jesus goes on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on his way he asks them, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about Jesus? What do the Gallup polls say? And they told him, John the Baptist, because of course, you know, some of John the Baptist's followers are following Jesus. John was beheaded already at this point. There, there was no TV, so no one knew what these guys looked like, and they said things that sounded the same. So some people are going, John the Baptist is back, and he's back with a vengeance, buckle up. Others say Elijah, this was the expected prophet, which we're gonna read about here shortly, to come before the day of the Lord. And others, one of the prophets, so Jesus is a prophet, like the ones before him. In verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And he gets personal here. And I imagine there was a moment of silence, and Peter answers, he's always the first and most eager to speak, you are the Christ. And this is the crux, the hinge point of all of Mark's gospel, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So he's confirming, yes, that's true, and now let's keep that on the DL for now. And then in verse 31, it says, he began, somebody say began. This is important, it's an important word because we, we kind of backfill what we know about Jesus into all the Jesus stories. We know that Jesus came to die on the cross. My six-year-old knows that. Jesus came to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, to, so that we could have forgiveness. He died and rose again on the third day. Like, this is the story, right? But the disciples didn't understand this. They would have had no expectation of this. This would not have been something in their purview. And so at this point, after he's been identified by Peter as the Christ and confirmed that, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we're like, yeah, sure, that's what happened, no problem. This would be inconceivable, inconceivable to the disciples. And he said this plainly. And what was the response from Peter? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you, no, never. I will never let that happen. You cannot say, you gotta stop this. You're killing your PR, stop. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Not my favorite nickname. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What did Mark do by putting this miracle story of this blind man being healed in stages with Peter getting right the identity of Jesus, but wrong what it meant for him to suffer? He's saying, you see, but you don't see clearly. And so with our time this morning, I want to show you how we need a vision of Jesus, a Jesus-centered vision that is based in the clarity that scripture provides. And that presents to us, not a Jesus that forgives us of our sin and winks at all of our um, disobedience, not a Sunday morning Jesus that makes us feel good and gives us some seven steps for a better life, Jesus is going to, in this passage, reveal himself as the suffering Messiah who's victorious through death, and he's gonna invite every follower of him to live in the exact same way. And if you don't have a clear Jesus-centered vision, you will not be a part of the revival that he is gonna be bringing because it is a revival of obedience, it is a revival of self-denial, and it is a revival of victory through suffering. That doesn't sound very popular, does it? But listen to what he says. Who is this Jesus then? Mark eight thirty four. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, this is right after he's rebuked Peter, he said to them, if 
anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. It's going to appear contrary. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will, in fact, save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And so if you live your life with a you-centered vision, looking what's best for you, and you do, in fact, succeed in gaining everything you desire and yet forfeit your soul, for what can a man give in return for his soul? It doesn't matter how much wealth you amass, it doesn't matter how much success you have, there's nothing that you can do for yourself. You need a savior. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And this word when begins a new theme that develops after this and begins to uh, bring our attention to the timing of when things are gonna occur and how this is all gonna go down. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point, the Holy Spirit brought you to the conclusion that everything you have is a liability. That you are not a good Lord of your life. That following your own inner desires and your own thoughts and your own perceptions has actually led you down a path that leads to death. And along that path has been one bit of pain after another for you and the people around you. And some people don't get very far down that path. Maybe early in life you gave your life to the Lord and so you escaped a lot of that destruction. Some of us present in this room this morning went way far down that path and came almost close to the end of even your physical life before you had an encounter with God that changed everything. And the good news of the gospel is that whoever and anyone would follow Jesus finds forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Isn't that good news? And so if you're a six-year-old pastor's kid who's done very little wrong, or you're a 60-year-old meth addict who's about to die and is being resuscitated, there is hope for you, Jesus says, anyone and whoever. Do you understand this? But it's an invitation to follow him. And it's an invitation to deny oneself. It's an invitation to acknowledge that he is the Christ and then to live as he has lived and walk as he has walked. And he promises that it's in this losing of your life that you find it. And it's in this following of Jesus that salvation comes. The apostle Paul figured this out after his encounter with Jesus in Philippians chapter three and verse seven. He said, whatever gain I had, and he had a lot, he had a lot going for him in the religious world, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you don't see Jesus clearly, you won't see a Jesus who wants to actually have a relationship with you where he knows you and you know him. You can, you can know Jesus, yep, you're the Christ, but until you know him, you don't see him clearly. Until you wake up talking to him, you don't see him. This is why you don't need me. Did you know that? This is not very good job security. You don't need me. You don't need me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead Christ Church with Tiffany. We're going to lead this, this team together. We're going to get out into this community. We're going to bring the gospel. We're going to bring the kingdom everywhere we go. We're going to serve the church that is here. We are going to, I'm going to preach. I'm going to write sermons. But listen, what you need, the salvation for your soul, you don't need me for. Because there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And he's got everything that you need. And my job is just to point you to him, point you to him, point you to him. And this is what the Apostle Paul found. 
He said, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. That's a Greek dirty word, by the way. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, as Jesus followers, we ought to be the most self-sacrificing people, the most self-denying people and the people with the most joy. Do you realize that? It's amazing. We ought to be the ones who are getting up early and staying up late and serving our lives and orient ourselves towards our children, towards our families, uh, sacrificing in prayer, in generosity, in service, giving, 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 not being focused on self and at the same time having a huge smile on our face because we're walking in the shoes of our Savior who was victorious through death. He was the victorious suffering Messiah and this is what he's being invited into. Now, Mark does something super cool. In his gospel, he places right after this, this, this seeing Jesus clearly. So you get, the, you get the man being healed of his blindness in stages, and then you get Peter getting it but not getting it, and then you get Jesus saying, this is what I am, and this is what it looks like to follow me, and then you get Mark chapter nine, verses one to 13. He said, Mark 9, one, to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until, there's that time word again, they see, our eyes, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So that, whoa, that's gonna get everybody's attention because all people all the time are always interested in when is this whole thing gonna happen? I've been a pastor for, over, for 20 years and I, uh, people have never stopped being fascinated with the when. The Bible prophecy, the when is Jesus coming back and what are the signs of the times and are we in the end day? Everybody always wants to know those questions. Tell you what, if you wanna gather a crowd, do a sermon series on the revelation and everyone shows up. Why? Because we wanna know when. In fact, when Jesus had been resurrected from the grave and he presented himself to his disciples and before his ascension, what was the question they asked? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And so we're all fixated on the when. And so Jesus says this and then look at verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine this scene for a second? Can you imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples and he's taking you on a walk and you're already feeling kind of like on the in crowd because Jesus is like, all right, we're going somewhere secret. I'm gonna take you and you and you. And you're like, bye boys. <laughs> and this is of course the attitude the disciples had. And Jesus takes them on this mountain and they're having this, this time with Jesus, their teacher, who there was never enough teacher to go around. And so they're already excited about this. And then in an instant, boom, Jesus goes full light emitting, pure white, like, like you can't even, there aren't even words to describe it, how white he was. And then they notice with Jesus is Elijah, that, that most famous of the Old Testament prophets who was caught up to God in a chariot of fire and Moses, the lawgiver and the founder 
of the Pentateuch. I mean, these are the guys right here. And can you imagine what that moment must have been like? You go from seeing Jesus physically to hearing Jesus say, here's what I am spiritually, the Messiah. And what does that mean? I'm going to be victorious through suffering. And then you're having this physical experience of this transfiguration of Jesus in his glorified state. And he's being accompanied by saints of old who represent both what? The law and the prophets. And so a thing is always in the Old Testament established by two or three witnesses. And what does Jesus do? He reveals himself in his fullness with two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, two, three witnesses, Peter, James, and John. Isn't this amazing? This is like, it's such a crazy thing. Can you even imagine what this was like? And I just love how real the gospels are. Verse five says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) I love this. So Mark was the close associate of Peter's. And so this is Peter's rendition. So he's telling him what happens. And you get the reason why. Um, Peter was given to logorrhea, which is a disease of the mouth. This is when nothing should come out, something comes out. And, and so Peter's having this experience. And of course, what he's expressing is what all of us would feel. Like, I never want to leave this moment, right? I'm, I've never experienced a thing like this. I've never been this close to a spiritual reality that I'm living my life toward and I'm seeing it with my own eyes and it's right in front of me and things that I never could have imagined happening are happening and this is right where I want to be. And you know, when revival happens, there's that impulse in a lot of people. I'll never forget this. In the early 90s, there was a revival of sorts. I don't know how many of you guys were following Jesus in the early 90s, but this move of the Holy Spirit kind of swept through the United States and Canada, maybe other parts of the world. And I was a kid. I was 12, 13 years old, um, growing up in church. And I I went to church, and church was just a part of life, and church was nothing special to me. Uh, My friends were there, and we traded baseball cards after the service, and that's what I remember. But at this time, Every time you went into a church gathering, you could, ex- you could feel the heaviness of the presence of God. And people were responding to that in, in unique and unusual ways. People um, unable to get up off the floor in the, in the presence of the Lord. Uh, filled with like a, a joy that was bubbling over and in laughter that, uh, that couldn't be controlled. And experiencing like new gifts and, and, and new awareness and transformation. And people were being saved and delivered and set free. And amazing things were happening everywhere, everywhere you turned. And I was a little, I was just like a middle school student watching this happen. And I'll I'll never forget, um, uh, I actually used to wear corrective lenses. And so as a child, I I couldn't, I couldn't, I had terrible depth perception, which is why I I wasn't able to be good at baseball. That's my my excuse. Um, So I could never hit the ball. I remember the one time I was playing baseball as like a 12-year-old and I swung for it and I actually hit the ball. I was so surprised I didn't know what to do. I was like, I forgot, I forgot. What What do you do when you actually hit the ball? I'd struck out so many times. So I couldn't see this way. And then I had a hard time reading also. And so I was reading and this is me reading. So not, not great eyes. And our family didn't have a lot of money and our church put together a yard sale so that uh, we could purchase glasses for me or help pay for the glasses, whatever it was. I don't remember. I wasn't writing checks then. Um, and so there's this big rummage sale. And, and what are you thinking? You're going to put together enough money for people bring all their stuff that nobody wants and try to sell it in the church parking lot. But, but a guy at our church had a 1977 RX-7, Mazda RX-7, and it was a piece of junk. And he donated it for sale for like $700 at this rummage sale. But in the penny saver, which is how you advertise things back in the 90s, um, they accidentally wrote 1987 RX-7. 
And this is 1992 or 1993, and so that was like a relatively new sports car for almost nothing. And so hundreds of people showed up because of this misprint for this RX-7. Now, they were sadly disappointed at the condition of this car that was for sale, but they also bought all this stuff. And so I remember them helping to pay for my glasses, and so I had my little glasses. And uh, look, nerdy, it was great. Um, And through this series of church meetings, I show up again and again and again, and I'm also very prone to headaches. And shortly after having the glasses, I'd wear the glasses. They would help me to see, but they would just start to give me like a headache. And so I went forward for prayer because that's what everybody was doing after a service, not unlike this one. And I just said, hey, I get these headaches and I would love to not get these headaches. Would you pray for me? And this, uh, this, this little lady from Long Island, she prays for me. And I can't remember the words that she prayed, but she prayed and I didn't have a headache, and so I, had nothing, I didn't feel anything different at all. But I go home after church, we eat lunch, go home after church, I put on my glasses, and it was literally like that scene in Spider-Man. I put the glasses on, I can't see. I take the glasses off, I can see. Glasses, can't see, glasses off, can't see. And I have had perfect vision ever since then. Now that's not crazy. That's crazy, that's crazy. Now, I don't share that story very often. Because I'm one of those people when I hear a miracle story, I go, yeah, probably not. (laughs) And you may be here too, and you're going, yeah, I don't know about the 30-year-old testimony of a 12-year-old kid. Yeah, I'm not sure. But that's what I experienced. And it was all during a move of God. And listen, when you read these stories and you go, oh, this is just fanciful. Is this just the thing they said to stir up? There's only three of them. They could have conspired to say this whole thing happened. No. Listen, there is nothing God can't do. Do you know this? There's nothing God can't do. There's nothing on the inside of you that he can't heal. There's not a situation or circumstances that you're in that he cannot deliver you from. Jesus, through his own suffering and death and resurrection, has demonstrated and achieved by his own power salvation for humanity, and the invitation is out for everyone to hear him and to see him. And the more you look to him and the more you look upon him, the more clearly you see everything else. Do you know that? And so he's calling us into a followership that looks like self-denial, that looks like self-mortification, putting on a cross. It looks like you have committed treason and you are going to your own death with a smile on your face. It's the strangest thing in the world. But we know who see Jesus that it is a path towards life. That it is the place where you are saved from all the hurt and destruction and pain that you would make by living in a way that's oriented towards yourself. It's, It's the path that's come from you being set free and leads towards ultimate life. And it is the life that the kingdom of heaven is going to bring. And on the edge of that are soldiers in God's army, you and me, who are living our lives to give life away to other people with a smile that comes from joy they can't understand. Why? Because we see Jesus clearly. Listen, this is the rumblings of revival. This is where it starts. It starts in here, and it starts in here, and it goes out there. Do you know this? But we gotta see Jesus clearly. This is the last story in this section Next week, I hope to spend a little bit of time on what it looks like, really, to deny oneself and to follow Jesus. But I just want to end with this story in this section. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So they've had this experience of encountering Jesus and seeing him transfigured with Moses and Elijah. They've come down the mountain. We missed verses 7, 8, and 9. In fact, we probably should read that. It's kind of important. Uh, Verse 7 says, A cloud overshadowed them. A voice came from the cloud. 
This is God the Father speaking from heaven from a cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So he interrupts Peter, who's interrupting this whole thing and saying, Peter, stop talking. Listen to Jesus. And suddenly they looked around and no longer saw anyone with with them, but Jesus only, verse nine. And now they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, there's that time word again, the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they have no idea what any of this stuff. Then they have this conversation about Elijah and when he comes and what that's gonna look like. And they talk about that. We'll get, maybe get into that next week. In verse nine, verse four, chapter nine, verse 14 says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. They were not able. Able. They were not able. So they're bumping into inability. And he answered them, listen to this charge. Oh, faithless generation. And here's this time word again. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says the most amazing words, the four most important words in this section. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy. And when the spirit saw him, the spirit that was causing this problem inside of him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Here's this, this demon trying to put forward this grand demonstration of its own demonic power. And Jesus asked the father. So this is all happening and Jesus is engaging with the father, these diagnostic questions again. And look, look, it's the same word. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood and has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. You imagine how distraught this father is, his precious child, having been thrashed around and held back and, and convulsed and made deaf and mute by the spirit. And then he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Clearly, here's a guy who knows a thing about Jesus. He sees but he does not see clearly for he is saying, if you can do anything, will you have compassion on us and help us? If he knew Jesus, he'd know that compassion is what Jesus has and power is what Jesus has. And so he doesn't see Jesus clearly. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, listen, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love this passage. I love this passage. This is a person who's come all the way to Jesus with what he can see. He's made his way to the only one who can help. He isn't even sure anything good is coming. And so he's pleading and he's struggling. And even in the midst of that, he's affirming his belief that he does know. He's affirming what he can see. But then he says, help my unbelief. I need a healing of the heart as much as he needs a healing of the body. I need you to do something in me that gets me over this obstacle that keeps me held back. And so all I can do is come to Jesus. And don't you love that Jesus is gonna move on his behalf? He said, and when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never answer him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, 
it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Now listen, Jesus has been forecasting resurrection this whole time, and so Mark does this wonderful little thing. He does this scene where this boy who's been healed is now laying as though dead. And verse 27 says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, raised him up, and he arose. Mm. There is nothing that Jesus can't do. Nothing. There's nothing. Listen, so many of us have a place in our hearts of unbelief, a dark corner that says, well, he hasn't done this so far and so he probably won't or maybe he can't or maybe he caused it. And we've stopped asking and we've stopped coming to Jesus. And here's the thing, that unbelief is not a problem if you bring it to Jesus. <laughs> the only problem that unbelief can cause for you is when it keeps you from coming to the only one who can do something about the problem that you have, the hurt that you're experiencing, the fear of the future, the inadequacy, the inability, the addiction. And so I'm here to tell you, if you can see Jesus at all, keep on coming to Jesus. If you're spiritually nearsighted and he looks like a tree walking, keep on moving to Jesus. If he's right here and you can't make sense of the world around you, I'll go all in with Jesus and ask him to fix the inside of you. Help my unbelief so that you can do this thing for me. Wherever the gap is in what you can see and what you can understand, just bring it to Jesus. Just bring it to Jesus. Listen, I know from my own experience that there is a restoration that needs to happen. Verse 825 said it. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. In verse 12 of chapter nine in that conversation about Elijah, Jesus says, no, Elijah comes to restore, to complete, to put everything back together, to prepare the way for the son of man. And so here's the reality. There is a restoration that is going to precede this revival, I believe in my spirit. There's a restoration. There's some things inside of us that are not whole. And there's not steps to be whole. There's not books to make you whole. There's a person and his name is Jesus. There's nothing that you can do to be whole. If you feel only desperation, it's because you need to come to Jesus. Listen, this is where your vision of him is gonna become crystal clear. When you experience him doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Listen, I came to Jesus asking for help with headaches and I got restored vision. I don't think that was an accident either. I didn't even have, I wasn't even asking for the right thing, but he did a thing that he wanted to do. And I wonder how many of us are letting the unbelief in our life hold us back from even coming to him with those places, those dark corners of unbelief. Some of us are here this morning brokenhearted and not bringing it to Jesus. Maybe hard-hearted. Maybe you've just seen too much, been through too much. You're like, you know what? This is the line for you. You got God in a box. I don't know what the condition of your heart is, but I do know that you can bring it to Jesus. And I wanna invite you to do that. I wanna actually ask the worship team to come up and lead us in a closing song. And I just want us to create space 
the passage of scripture in Mark 9 that Jesus was talking about with the disciples was from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament that left every Jew with the expectation that God was gonna show up. God himself was gonna come and he was gonna send Elijah the prophet beforehand. And in that book, in chapter three and verse seven, God spoke to the prophet and he said, return to me, return to me. And I think that's the call this morning. Maybe you had a good relationship with God and then some things happened and now it's marginal or it's less than or it's empty or it's dry. The call is to return. Maybe you've never ever given over control of your life and asked the Lord to save you and to lead you and to make you his forever. The same call is true for you. You're like, I never left the Lord, I never was his. No, he made you and he owns you and he wants you back. And you've taken yourself a long way in the wrong direction and he's saying, come home. And so I just want us to have a moment of return. And I believe that when we come in the spirit of return, that God is gonna do a work of restoration. And I believe that that restoration is going to be what leads to revival. And so let's pray and then let's, let's seek the Lord together. Father, Lord, there is no uh, long path. There is no series of to-dos. God, what we've seen in story after story in this part of the scriptures and throughout is one moment with Jesus that changes everything. And God, I'm praying right now for breakthrough moments all over this auditorium. God, I'm praying right now for moments of restoration. Lord, where people are coming from various places with various situations, with various degrees of unbelief, but they're coming to Jesus. Lord, I pray right now that you would meet us in a powerful way. God, I pray that as there is a sincerity of of heart and a willingness with whatever faith we have to move in your direction, to return to you and to offer ourselves to you and to say, do whatever it is you can do, even if there's a doubt. God, I pray that as we come to Jesus, Lord, there would be a moment right now of healing and of restoration. God, I pray you would mend broken hearts. God, that you would soften hard hearts. God, that you would bring to life cold, dead hearts. God, would you do what only you can do? And would you, Lord, through the restoration of our hearts as we see Jesus clearly, God, would you begin this revival that we feel, feel stirring? Would you extend this to the lost and the broken? God, would we be those people who are bringing others to Jesus and begging, do this for them? And God, may this be a house of return. Lord, would you do what only you can do? In Jesus' mighty name, let's stand.